Hi, and welcome back to another episode of the Straight Shooter Recruiter. I'm Emily Durham, a campus recruiter by day and a podcaster by night. Today's conversation, as I'm sure you can tell by the title, is overdue. Today we're going to talk about racism in the North American job market. And as a listener, you might already have a couple of questions about this episode, so please, don't dive into this episode before listening to what I'm about to say. Thanks for tuning in. Before I dive in, I also want to stress the importance of continued learning in terms of what we're going to talk about today. I'm going to share some statistics as well as listener stories, but these are going to provide a snapshot, not a complete picture. It's crucial that we learn more about the past and present of systemic racism through things like scholarly articles, podcasts, and movies. So I really recommend that you follow the next influencers I'm about to list. On Instagram, I would recommend checking out influencers like at Austin Channing, at Tanya Compass, and at Lil Native Boy. Again, I'll link them in the description. You can also read books like Me and White Supremacy by Leila Saad. That's what I'm reading right now. You can watch movies like 13th on Netflix or listen to podcasts like 1619. Really, my episode is scraping the surface. We need to learn more. I'm imagining you probably have some questions right now. You're probably starting off by wondering what this episode is going to be like. I'll tell you first what this episode is not. This episode is not about me or other white voices. There is not going to be room for white saviors, guilt, or fragility here. This episode may not be comfortable for some of you. And good. That's why we're talking about it. Ijoma Oluo, author of So You Want to Talk About Race, said, to quote, Racial oppression should always be an emotional topic to discuss. It should always be anger-inducing. As long as racism exists to ruin the lives of countless people of color, it should be something that upsets us. But it upsets us because it exists, not because we talk about it. And if you're white, and you don't want to feel any of the pain by having these conversations, then you're asking people of color to continue to bear the entire burden of racism alone. The purpose of today's episode is to open up this platform to amplify racialized voices, to start conversations, and to educate. A couple of weeks ago, I posted on Instagram, LinkedIn, Reddit, everywhere, asking people who were comfortable to write in their lived experiences with racism at work or at school in North America specifically. And today you're going to hear those stories. You're going to hear the voices of the Black community and person of color community. Some folks have decided to stay anonymous and wrote in their stories that I'll read out to you. Others were comfortable sharing their names. You're going to hear their stories through written experiences, and some were actually able to send in audio recordings describing their experiences in their own words. What you're not going to hear are my thoughts, opinions, solutions, or explanations. This is about hearing them, not me. I can't thank the people who wrote in and recorded enough. Thank you for your time and thank you for your emotional labor. And for those who chose to share their identity, I'm going to be plugging all of their social media info into the description. Uplift these people, follow them, hype them up. Next, you might be asking, who the hell are you, Emily Durham, to talk about racism? 
I'm a white cisgendered woman, and I cannot start this episode without acknowledging my privilege and spending an extra second here. White privilege doesn't mean that your life or my life has never been hard. It means that the color of your skin is not one of the reasons that it's hard. The concept of white privilege really came into its own in the late 80s when Peggy McIntosh, a women's studies scholar and activist, started writing about it. In 1988, she wrote a paper called White Privilege and Male Privilege, a personal account of coming to see correspondences through work in women's studies. This listed 46 examples of her own experiences with white privilege. Number 24 is, I can be pretty sure that if I ask to speak to the person in charge, I'm going to be seeing a person of my own race. She went on to say, to quote, White privilege is like an invisible, weightless knapsack of special provisions, maps, passports, code books, visas, clothes, tools, and blank checks. She also says, to quote, White privilege is the unquestioned and unearned set of advantages, entitlements, benefits, and choices bestowed upon people solely because they're white. Generally, white people who experience such privilege do so without being conscious of it. So why am I someone who benefits from white privilege because of how I look every day recording this. I know that as a white woman, I don't know how the Black, Indigenous, and POC community may feel. But I do have a platform with this podcast and with LinkedIn and Instagram. And my silence is violence. I need to use my platform to educate listeners and amplify the voices of people who need to be heard. I would rather speak up and need to learn from my mistakes than say nothing at all. So bear with me. I also know that I'm committed to doing the work. I'm committed to listening, learning, and unlearning. And I stand with you to do better in my community, on my platforms, and within myself. All right, let's get into it. It's interesting. When I opened up this call for folks to share their experiences with racism online, I didn't expect to get the amount of pushback that I did. That was probably naive of me. I had so many people arguing that, to quote, racism is not relevant in the workforce, or especially not in Canada. And those messages were nothing but reinforcement that this episode was important. So I'm going to share some statistics that you need to keep in the back of your mind as we go through this episode. But like I mentioned in the beginning, there's more to learn and way more work to be done. I also want to be clear that many of these words and statistics are not my own. I'm going to cite them in the description so that you can learn and read more. But for starters, I think it's safe to say that some of us were raised being told that if we worked really hard and went to a good school and got great internships that we could get anything we wanted in life. A true meritocracy. And maybe that would be true if the North Americas were not built on the foundation of racism that runs so deep It's systemic and embedded in everything that we do, from government to healthcare, and of course, to the job market. And that's not to say that hard work and education aren't important, because they are. But it is to say that the Black community and POC community have to work unquestionably harder than white-passing people for much less recognition. And it starts early. Black preschoolers are much more likely to be suspended than white students. These are kids we're talking about. Black students make up 18% of all preschoolers, but represent almost 50% of all preschool suspensions in the U.S. 
where white students who make up 43% of enrollment only represent 26% of suspensions. The same study found that black boys as young as 10 are perceived to be significantly older and less innocent when compared to white children at the same age. Moving on to high school, when black students and white students commit similar infractions, black students are suspended and expelled three times more often than white students. That's three times for the same offenses. Fast forward to university, where studies have shown that college professors respond more often and more consistently to questions asked by students with white-sounding names. Many studies and researchers have also shown that the constant stress of dealing with things like this and other daily encounters with racism and prejudice can result in mental health issues and without a question can impact academic performance. Black students are also more likely to need to take on more debt to go to university. This is based off of historical and present injustices, making it all the more difficult to accumulate wealth after graduation. And beyond school, Black graduates are two times more likely to be unemployed than white students, even if they're in a high-demand field like engineering or STEM. And is that really surprising when you consider that you are 50% less likely to get a job interview if your application has a Black-sounding name in the U.S.? But for those who think that this is only happening in America, a recent study confirmed that relative to the United States— Visible minorities in Canada were 11% more likely to face discrimination in hiring. In the U.S., black workers are less likely than white workers to be employed in a job that is consistent with their level of education. All of these facts are barely scraping the surface of anti-black racism in North America, let alone just in the job market. I'm going to link much more in terms of resources in the description. You'll hear me say this a bunch of times, but please check them out. According to a Pew Research poll, Latino people are the second most discriminated against ethnic group in the U.S., after the Black community. A previous report found that as of 2015, only 15% of the Latino community aged 25 to 29 had a university degree, compared to 41% of the white community. It's important to call out as well that Black and Latino workers are paid less than their white counterparts, despite the exact same educational attainment. It also can't go without mentioning that discrimination against the Asian community continues to persist, especially in the job market. Researchers at the University of Toronto found that employees of East Asian descent, generally Chinese, Japanese, and Korean, were stereotyped as high in competence, but low in warmth and dominance, perpetuating, to quote, the idea that East Asians are ideal as subordinate employees suited for technical competence positions, but are unqualified to be leaders and managers. They referred to this as the bamboo ceiling. It also explains why college and advanced degrees hold less worth for Asian Americans than for whites. I'm so humbled and grateful that we can now share some of the experiences that were submitted as part of this episode. I'm going to start in somewhat chronological order. We're going to start with the submissions that focus on the job application process and then segue into on-the-job discrimination. This first submission comes in anonymously from Toronto. It's going to follow two people. One person we're going to call Samantha, and the other is their romantic partner. We're going to call this person Diaz. 
Of course, these names have been altered to protect their identity. Both of these people went to the exact same highly regarded law school and articled for the same firm. On paper, they have the exact same credentials. Identical. After articling, neither of them were hired back to the firm they worked for. So naturally, they started to apply for positions across a variety of, ter- of different firms rather in Toronto. Samantha, she received 50% more callbacks than Diaz. Same qualifications, same experience, same education. Our next experience also comes from Toronto. Veneranda is a brilliant and beautiful person that I've had the pleasure of knowing since high school. And she shared the below. I'll link her Instagram in the description for you to check her out. The following are her words. When I first began job hunting as a brand new graduate, I was well aware that it was difficult for other students as well, but I didn't take into consideration that I was a Korean Canadian. I had sent out hundreds of applications and no one had replied. So I decided to seek professional help with my resume in case I missed out on key factors. After months of editing, I regained the courage to send out applications once again. Only this time, I was receiving interview opportunities with the question of how fluent are you with the English language? At first, I didn't take offense to it, as communication can be a concern, but after a while, I began to get frustrated about why every single company was asking me race-based questions rather than job-based questions. During interviews, they assumed I had a certain set of skills that were associated to stereotypes of my race, and they skimmed over questions that were true to the job. After numerous interviews, I decided to dig deep and figure out what the problem was and concluded that it was because of my name. I commonly went by a different English name, but because I had a separate legally used Korean name, I had written that legal name on my resume. So my next decision was to switch that name to my English name. From this, I ended up getting interview requests from companies that had never replied back, even after four separate applications. During interviews, they assumed that I was fluent in English, and I also received questions that were true to the job and a dramatically lower number of race-related questions. The rest of our submissions are going to focus on racism and discrimination on the job. Thank you so much to both of you who submitted for your application-based discrimination. This first submission comes in as an anonymous one from Toronto. The person who wrote in is a lawyer. When they were articling, they were asked by a senior partner at their firm to quote, So exactly how Muslim are you? The senior partner was an employment and human rights lawyer. They knew that they could not legally ask this, but they didn't care. The person who wrote in said that when they heard this, they were shocked. So shocked that they didn't actually know how to respond and felt like they didn't give a good enough answer back, but that this moment really stuck with them. The rest of the submissions you're going to hear were pre-recorded by the people who actually lived these experiences. Don't forget that all of their socials are going to be linked in the description, so check them out and give them a follow on their platforms. My name is Dave, and I've been a trainer, facilitator, instructional designer, basically had a career in learning for the better part of 20 years. I picked a career in people development because I have a passion for helping people be successful. I have to admit, I'm a little reluctant to share this story because, as I'm sure is the case with a lot of people, I 
I don't have the hard, fast evidence to prove that my story is specifically race-related, but, but I'll share it anyway. Years ago, uh, I was a sales trainer with a company of about 400 people. I'd been in my position and, and very successful about, for about three and a half years. Our, our numbers were great. I had a great relationship with the sales reps, the sales managers, upper management, Everything was great. The problem started when the president was replaced by one of the VPs of sales. The vibe changed almost immediately, where before I felt I fit in perfectly and could be friendly with everyone, all of a sudden I felt like an outsider. Slowly people were being pushed out and replaced by the new president's people, not entirely out of the ordinary. But I remember having lunch with him and the management team, and all they talked about was their experiences growing up wealthy what kind of boats they had, their cottages. And I suddenly felt like I had very little in common anymore. Eventually, I was told that despite the fact that I'd been in my position for years and I had always done very well, there was suddenly a new policy that sales trainers needed to have sales experience within the company. So I needed to move to sales for six months or take a package and leave. To be honest, it it was a slap in the face. I negotiated a, a much better package and essentially cut ties. And it wasn't until later when I had a chance to speak to my ex-co-workers that they'd pointed out to me that everyone he'd put in place to replace the people he'd pushed out were essentially white males that grew up wealthy and the occasional white female. To be honest, I was naive not to see it initially. I even shook his hand the day I left because I didn't think anything of it. Perhaps the most heartbreaking thing is the conversation I had with my wife earlier today. I asked her if she'd ever experienced something like this, and she told me that for the longest time when she looked at management and upper management in the organizations she worked for, she could really never see herself there. She has a bit of an accent. She's brilliant and she's a great communicator, but she didn't move to Canada until she was a teenager. So it's a slight accent. But despite that, she just feels that that's out of reach. The real tragedy is finding out after almost 10 years of marriage that this is the case. In her case, it's not even about people's biases against her. She had those limits placed on herself. She had, or she has, a bias against herself. I'm telling you, these impacts run really deep. Hi, my name is Cynthia Colas and I'm from Tallahassee, Florida. Um, I just recently obtained my first degree in marketing at Florida State University and I'm now re-enrolled for my second bachelor's degree in management informational systems. When it comes to um, the things I'm very passionate about, I'm very passionate about um, the area of project management. I love working on projects. It's always been something that I've been very fond of. I'm just like the type of person that has always been in leadership positions and where I was in charge of like making sure that things are executed and done um, in the right way. Uh, my overall career goal is to become an IT project manager or program manager. Um, to help support that, I have like acquired multiple certifications in project management, such as like the Certified Scrum Master certification, Prince Two certification, Safe Agile. Um, etc. Um, despite like my how my education career interests revolve around like business and information technology, I have always been um, politically involved um, 
and just like offering help um, to others within my community. Like my first ever projects were actually in the political sphere rather than um, the business sphere. Like in the past, like I, um, I've organized many political um, events and charity projects such as donation drives for women's shelters, sexual assault pre- um, prevention programs, um, campaign initiatives, um, second chances, voting rights restoration projects, community rallies, um, and lobbying initiatives in support of racial justice and immigration reform. I've also volunteered as a, um, the political action director for the FSU National or, um, Association of Advancement of Colored People, which is basically the FSU NWACP, um, and also as president of the FSU National Organization for Women. I have orchestrated many, many events, many political rallies, protests, um, and lobbying initiatives. Um, you know, I've always been a champion um, in making sure that people, um, especially millennials, are involved in the community and are advocating for um, for for rights. Uh, just for basic human rights. Um, it's always been something that I've always been passionate about. Um, and because of my advocacy and involvement, there's there's been times when I've been targeted and intimidated by Confederate groups um, and supporters on social media. There's There's been times where they've taken pics of my social media and posted it on Save Southern Heritage Florida or they would post it on you know their their Facebook group or Facebook page and and say watch out for for this individual you know and despite all the the tactics used I, I I've continued to remain involved um, since equality has been and will continue to be something that I will forever be passionate about. Regardless of the intimidation practice or where I end up or where I am in my life, I will always continue to value and fight for equality. And in, in my eyes, um, you know, just not, not saying anything at all would be a huge disservice to myself. Um, since you know it, it's important for me to stand up and and for causes related towards my own identity as an African American woman, you know, like it's important for me to fight for for causes that are related towards my own identity, since that's who I am. Like if I can't fight for issues pertaining to myself, then like I can't fight for anything else. And that's my philosophy. Um, When it comes to, like, my experience, my first project management internship was uh, with a very, very, very highly respected company in the tech industry. I remember being so excited um, to get started and to meet with everyone um, within the workplace. And, like, my happiness became very short-sighted um, 
uh, when like my boss started to say some of the most craziest and degrading things to me um I like I was I wouldn't just say craziest I, I would definitely say it in my mind, racist. You know, I was told to build my vocab, to work on my professional etiquette, and to avoid using the phrase, I can't assure you, since I come off as defensive when I say it. And this all took me by surprise, since I've worked at, you know, some of the most highest political offices and and I've never and I've never been told to work on my professional etiquette or to build my vocab um so I was really taken back when I would hear these things and my boss was very tough on me unusually tough like she would look at me with disgust and disappointment and you know I was just like very taken back as to why she would do it I I would try my best to just ignore it you know like that's the least I would tell myself to just ignore it and just make it through the end of the internship um but I I just I just couldn't because there was even like one time where she said that look you know that looking at my work is sad and I was just like what you know like she literally said that like um in a conference call uh, there was like no res- no respect or consideration given towards me as to like how I would feel. I was you know a little scared about you know com- com- um, t- speaking out or speaking up for myself. Um, but as I spoke to others as to how I felt and some of the incidents and things that my boss would say to me. I received the affirmation that, you know, I wasn't being treated with respect. I, that I was experiencing, you know, racism. You know, I, a lot of my friends and family members would tell me that, you know, that some of the things that she was saying was racist. I, I wanted to think that it wasn't racism. I wanted to think it was something else. But, like, deep inside, I knew, I knew that the things that were being told to me were racist. Like, I've always been the type of person that wants to give the benefit of the doubt, but this time, I couldn't. It was just like, it was getting to the point where, like, I had enough of the disrespect. I literally had enough of the disrespect. Because uh, w- it was getting to the point where, like, I was crying. I was literally crying in the bathroom stalls. Like, literally, I became the em- employee that would go into the bathroom stalls after after a terrible incident and just cry in there because of how frustrated I was. You know, I literally told myself that I can't continue with this emotion being bottled up, you know, like I have to speak up for myself. So I I I 
I convinced myself that I had to tell my boss to respect me. Yes, I, as an intern, had to literally tell my boss to have some respect for me as an individual in the workplace. I told her that she needed to respect me as a human, that she needed to respect me as an individual here. And the power dynamics in that conversation was unbelievable because she hired me. And the fact that I had to tell someone who hired me to respect me, it was it was mind boggling. Like I had, I was so scared, you know, I was so scared to even say such things. I was completely petrified because I, I kept telling myself that I literally came across this country for this dream internship. And the last thing that I wanted was to get fired out for speaking out against racism towards me, especially when I'm so far away. Um, and even as I, you know, did regardless and poured my, my heart out to her, my boss told me that she would attempt she would attempt to be much nicer to me if I work on my professional etiquette. I I was just, you know, taken back. But, like, you know, I was a little bit frustrated. Like, when she said that, like, I, I didn't say anything. There was nothing else for me to say because I, you know, I, I, I tried my best to tell her, like, how I felt, you know, about some of the things that she said and so I literally told her that she could not tell um she could not tell me talk to me or any person of color like the way she, that she was doing because of the difference of the of the cultural backgrounds I tried saying that strategically because I didn't want to be too confrontational with her. The fact that she was trying to compromise on me receiving respect with with that idea that like I need to work on my professional etiquette. Like she was trying to say that in order for you to receive respect, you need to do X, Y, and Z. And I'm just like, no, 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 no. Like I, I, that's not how it works in the workplace. Respect should be given automatically. People should respect others in the workplace regardless for for the sake of, of peace in the workplace and and the fact that like I that she was trying to make it seem like I'm uneducated that I'm not you know articulate uh, that I'm not intelligent it, it it it's just it's sad it's disappointing that she stooped to that level um and tried to delegitimize my intelligence um knowing the fact that I came so far away from so far away from 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 home for this internship and psychologically it it was just very sad for me because I was so vulnerable just being so far away and I the last thing that I, I ever wanted to deal with at a dream internship is 
was dealing with racism. That's the last thing I ever wanted to deal with. I, I, I dealt with it and, you know, I, I finished my, my internship. Um, and looking back, it, it, it's, it's definitely, you know, something that, that's scarring, but I will continue to move forward, you know. I will continue to move forward. You know, like, dealing with racism in the workplace is nothing new to me, but the reason why that incident is so scarring is because it was a dream internship, you know. It was something I really wanted to work out. You know, other than that, like, in the past, like, I've worked in retail before, and there's been many times when I was treated differently from my colleagues in retail, but those were, like, a, a more sub subtle, like, incidents. Like, there was just, like, incidents where, like, you know, I was, like, looked differently or I wasn't, you know, really trusted um, by others. And it, 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 it really did fall down towards my skin color because, like, there was nothing on my reputation or my record that made it seem like I didn't deserve that ounce of trust or respect. Um, and it's sad because, like, you know, my mom never gave me that talk. She never gave me that talk that I am a black woman and that there's certain things that are going to happen to me, that there's certain people that are going to just like discriminate me automatically she never told me that I had to learn throughout my life that I would deal with racism you know I had to learn why people treated me so differently at first it didn't make any sense to me whatsoever like because like I never had that talk with my mom because I never like I never, I didn't know what racism was until I, you know, picked up on the patterns as to why, why people treat me so differently. And then I realized that it was racism. Um, as I became more educated about the topic and like throughout my life, I've come to realize that, you know, no matter what industry that I go into, it, you know, racism is something that I always be, so, you know, prone to because of my, the color of my skin. The color of my skin is something that I can't hide. You know, it's something that, like, I was born with. It's something that I'm proud about. It's something that I wouldn't even hide if I had the choice because it's what makes me who I am today? It's, you know, a trait that, you know, I can, that can never be, like, the color of someone's skin is a trait that can never be hidden. Especially by, uh, by any person of color, um, that is non-passing. Um, it, it's, forever the identities of people of color regardless of people say they don't see it or not and I feel like as tensions continue 
to grow at an all-time high, companies really need to do their part. Instead of sending out PR messages, they really need to just do more in diversifying the industry, um, creating safe and respectful environments for people of color to succeed, um, and also just building more opportunities for Black leaders. You know, I, I've been doing my part in voicing out the need for companies to do more on LinkedIn. And I know that there's been others um, that have also been very vocal about the need for more to be done because the, the PR messages will never be enough. Like we've heard it all. The black community has heard it already that they that these companies stand with us, they hear us out. We have heard this in the past. It's time for there to be a different tone. It's time for there to be more action involved. It's time for companies to to start specifying what they're going to do rather than just hearing us out. You know, our causes, Black issues, have been heard in the past. You know, it's time for there to be action. And I, I think this is, with everything going on, companies that really do stand with us in solidarity are acting rather than just sending out their PR messages. Because action is what's needed at a time like this in our in society. Day I had um I came I came across like a uh, a senior tech recruiter um I came across a post of hers in and stating that all lives matter and I was just like I I was just like taken back I literally just like went to the search bar of LinkedIn and just like put in like Black Lives Matter I came across a all lives matter post. Um, from a senior tech recruiter. I was just taken back when I saw that. Um, and I, I, I guess that she did learn about the implications of posting that. And she posted something else saying that she's really sorry and that she wants to like learn more. And I told her that you can learn more by not just reading articles, but by speaking to people of color to get, you know, the, the raw and uncensored um, information as to how you can do better. So I had like a two-hour conference call with her. Two-hour conference call with her. Um, and during this conference call, I told her about what she could do to really, you know, help with the lack of diversity within the tech industry. She told me, in her words, like she literally told me that there's a lack of diversity in the tech industry because of the lack of qualified applicants that are minorities. And I'm just like, this, 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 this excuse has, is, is very similar to the excuse that a lot of institutions have, especially um, educational institutions, where they would say that the reason that there's a lack of diversity at the school is because of the lack of qualified applicants that are minorities. I have already heard stuff like this in the past. And I'm just tired of hearing that. Like, it, it's just tiring um, to hear such a, 
such an excuse. A lame excuse, I'll put at that. <laughs> lame. Because in, in, in my mind, if that is the case, if that really is the case, you know, companies must dig deeper to find qualified individuals. There are many minorities that are, are well qualified beyond their years, ambitious, brilliant, and at least wanting to to learn more. They're definitely out there, you know? Um, just companies just need to in, increase their diversity outreaching um, and retention efforts especially at this time of history. You know, now is like the time where we really need to solve or at least mitigate the lack of diversity in the workplace. Now is the time where companies should heavily re-strategize and change their diversity recruiting retention approaches so that they can help empower the lives and careers of those within the marginalized community. Now is the time where companies need to act rather than to send out PR messages. Because action is what matters at this time. My name is Anna Marie Ince. And I am a talent acquisition lead for a startup here in Toronto. Um, A little bit about me is I'm passionate about what I do uh, as a recruiter, uh, whether it's helping and supporting others, hearing about others' passion, or, you know, watching other people grow. Uh, And I've been very fortunate in the past six years of recruitment to experience that. So I've had the opportunity to work for large and small companies, either working for an agency or working internally as talent acquisition. Um, And I think, you know, when you're much younger as a person of color or as a black person, you have this understanding that you must work twice as hard to be half as good. Um, And you see this a lot in in families uh, where Uh, the parents or the grandparents or the aunts and uncles will be speaking to younger uh, teenagers, preteens, kids, and they'll kind of start to push them to more trade jobs. Because at the end of the day, the, the great thing about a trade is that, as an example, a plumber, you will always need a plumber. Your toilet or your sink will always original or will, will break, will break down and you will need to have someone come and fix it. There could be some politics company to company, but they definitely would still need um, people. Whereas in an office, it's much, much more political. And so let me be very clear here. There is always bias in recruitment, not specific to just race, just always. Um, And so as an example for some of the roles, let's just say I have a niche role and I have them meet with middle management or upper management. They'll sit in these interviews and I'll be super ecstatic. I have this super niche role that I am sending a candidate forward. Uh, You know, communication's great. They seem super knowledgeable on the subject. Uh, The manager will meet with them and they'll cut back to me and they're like, 
do you have anybody else? Do you have more people? And I had originally said, well, you know, it's super hard to find this person, super hard to find this niche skill set. Uh, so no, I don't have anybody right now that's interested. Uh, it, was there anything, you know, that had happened in the interview? And <laughs> no matter what the situation is, it'll always sound the same. It'll say, it'll be around the, the topic of, mm, they had the qualifications, but I just don't know if they'd be the right fit. And I don't want to say no to them just yet. Uh, let's just see what kind of candidates we have. Now, the next part truly depends on what kind of niche skill set I'm talking about. But if, as an example, it's like I'll use an example that truly happened where I said, well, this skill set is super niche. Uh, I can get you people that have potential. And they said, okay, get us some of the potentials, line them up and set up some interviews. So I did. And long story short, the one of the potentials who ended up being white got the job. And the person who did not, who was black, didn't. And it, it's, it's tough because when you're looking at someone as someone in, like, let's just say you're the person who is in that upper management, middle management role who is hiring, when you meet with someone and you're truly looking for that potential in them, if they remind you of your brother, cousin, husband, uncle, these, these individuals that are in your own life or from your personal experience, uh, it's much easier to see that potential in them, right? You, you saw what kind of uh, hoops your brother had to jump through. You know, he was a kid, but he learned from those mistakes. You don't really see that with a person of color unless you have had a person of color in your life. And as much as I, obviously it's not across the board, but for a lot of upper management or management roles, they don't really have somebody like that in their life that is a person of color that they truly see that potential in. And that is just one way uh, that some individuals get hired. Sometimes um, right after the interview uh, and meeting with this person who has that skill set, I will get a, hey, I have an aunt, cousin, sister, um, or one of the, another manager will say, Hey, I have an aunt, cousin, sister. They work super hard. They're great at what they do. I think you should hire them. Um, and they'll end up getting hired and they don't have this niche skill set. They don't understand what it is. They like, I've had some people who were once cashiers at some point and have transitioned into a role like this one. There's nothing against being a cashier, but when you have a group of candidates who are well within the, the skill set, who are looking at a salary range that you had already provided, um, and then you just kind of turn and pivot and then hire someone that you have to now train. And, and it's all, you know, just so that you don't have to hire someone of color. Uh, and they're not purposefully doing this. I mean, I, I hope not, but in reality, that's why you see so few people of color, so few black men and women in such prominent roles, why you don't see them a lot in middle management. And a lot of these people um, end up feeling stuck uh, and they'll still, you know, go to all of these interviews and keep interviewing and essentially just feel fatigued and tired and they don't want to have to do this anymore. It's also why so many people, uh, black men and women also want to start their own uh, companies because there is going to be no bias uh, specifically to race. You could be the best person in your field um, and someone will just take one look at you and say, no, 
not not in my company. I've also had the opportunity to work at agencies that have been around for many years, uh, some multiple decades. I even worked at an agency that was the very first employment agency to ever exist. And uh, I've experienced so much and I've heard so much about different kind of recruitment styles and and how recruitment came to be what it is today. Uh, But one story truly sticks out. I was at a bar sitting down with a fellow recruiter. Well, he's not a recruiter now, but he had recruited for like 60, 70 years. He's much, much older. And he was chatting with me about how they used to do uh, recruitment in the 70s and, and the 80s and how it used to work was they had an alphanumeric code uh, to distinguish um, personal preference. So if you were hiring for a receptionist, uh, you could say that I'm looking for a receptionist and then you would put a little code at the end. So he was explaining that A1 might be a petite blonde, uh, whereas like a B3 could be a more curvaceous uh, person of color or black woman. And um, I thought it was so interesting. And he had said, yeah, there was always been this bias within recruitment. Um, it'll never truly go away, but it was just, it wasn't as sneaky back then. Um, and then all in one shot looked at me and said, you know, although you would have been a B3 back in the day, you'll always be an A1 in my eyes. And so it was a little odd to kind of go from feeling like, wow, like that's how, like how far we've come from history. And then immediately become fetishized. Like, I think it, you know, truly goes to show, although we keep thinking that we're coming from such an old age and, uh, you know, that, that was the past, that it it truly isn't the past. Um, it's still prevalent today. And, um, once again, like I would interview for these roles and I would also notice, you know, there's no people of color, um, I'm interesting when I'm, I'm sourcing on LinkedIn, I'm looking on LinkedIn, I'm like, Hey, there's no people of color currently within their TA or within their company. And then I would interview and essentially they would pass on me. And then I would take a look at the person that they did move forward with and not a person of color at all. And they definitely have less experience than me. And it's normal. I, I like at this point, I've uh, the only way that I move forward in a role is unless I'm specifically referred to the role. And, um, you know, it's because the person that's referring me can truly speak to my hard work. Um, they can speak to uh, what I've done in the past. Whereas sometimes I, I walk into these interviews and it truly doesn't matter what I've done in the past. They look at me and they, they, they already know what their decision is. Uh, and that's not all the time, uh, but it is most of the time. And so, I, you know, even being in a position of TA or being within an agency and, and seeing everyone kind of bring up, oh, yes, we're, we're definitely, we have to start shooting for diversity. We have to shoot for diversity. And I've, I've spoken to some companies where I, I would let them know, I'm like, hey, you know, we are looking to have more diverse business units. We are looking to have more diverse uh, teams and departments. And they'll laugh at me and they're like, yeah, but your team isn't that diverse. Like, uh, I mean, you are, yes, racially ambiguous, but aside from you, everybody else is white. And, you know, I have to look at myself in the mirror and say, well, are we just saying this so that we can have a nice diversity badge on our jackets? Um, You know, we have 
posters and ads and all kinds of mediums that have, uh, you know, black men and women, you know, laughing, having a good time. But in reality, you take a look at our teams and they're not that diverse. And so this question has to be put on not just HR, but also other teams to diversify. I, I specifically remember a time when I was um, meeting with a, a fellow HR uh, director and they were just like, well, how would you feel if you were a diversity hire? And <laughs> I kind of laughed and I said, I'd feel great. Right now, people judge me based off of the color of my skin. They don't even need to hear me. Op- like, they don't even need to hear what I have to say. They already know what box they're going to put me in. But if all of people that look like me were being interviewed for one role, at least one of us will get it. You know, we, we have to start diversifying some of these roles somehow. Um, I'm not saying if they don't have the skill set, uh, I mean, by all means, try to get as close as you possibly can get. But as I'd mentioned earlier, you're not always going to get that. And, and you don't always get that regardless of race. And sometimes you settle for potential. Um, I just think that some upper management, some middle management really just need to open their eyes on what they believe potential is for black men and women. Thank you for listening to this episode. I want to wrap up with the most sincere thank you to every single person who wrote in. Thank you for sharing your experience. And to listeners, especially those of you who are employers or recruiters, check these brilliant people out. Links to their details will be in the description. I also need to acknowledge and urge that the conversation can't stop here, myself included. Let's be and stay committed to learning, speaking up, and amplifying the voices of racialized people. Please, continue these conversations in your communities with your friends and at home. Support and uplift the Black, Indigenous, and people of color in your life. If it's within your means, donate to organizations that are fighting for the rights of Black lives today. Again, links to these resources and influencers and the brilliant people you heard from are all in the description. 